Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Right now, as we get into this, because I want to get as much time as we possibly can on this, because as I said, council today, uh, it was actually general issues committee, but it was all of city council was there. Uh, it was a loaded and important and impactful meeting, a lot of stuff on the agenda. So it uh, seems like a very good time to bring in John Best, who's publisher of the Bay Observer. John, how are you tonight? Doing fine, Scott. Nice to be with you again. You, you too. How's your poetry writing, by the way? Uh, I, I've eased off. Have you? Uh, yeah, since public school. So you're not going to be applying for our poet in place, the city's official poet position? Uh, no, no, I'll, <laughs> uh, I'll leave that for, uh, somebody with a little more talent. Yes. I saw that the, uh, that they had posted that and I thought what an odd thing to post when we're facing a 14.2% tax increase that now, and I know it's just a little bit of money, but you know, once upon, I, once upon a time I was told that you can't be trusted with the big things if you can't handle the little things. And if, if council can't see that this is not, I don't think the time to add a paid poet position uh, I don't know when is the time, but anyway, we'll, we'll maybe get to the poetry, whole poetry thing another day, but um, anyway. Sure. So uh, a couple of very big things uh, at City Hall today, and let's start with the one that was first on the agenda, which was the update on First Ontario Centre. You and I talked about this just a week or so ago, where there was a lot of mystery around what was happening because the Toronto Rock were now being allowed to spend their whole season there, and we weren't really finding out what was going on. Big update today. Now they say everything seems to have fallen into place and construction, we're going to see evidence of construction within a month and it's going to be finished by the fall, by October of 2025. Yeah, that's what they said. And uh, I think uh, the thing that jumped off the page to me is the fact that he just sort of casually, uh, the gentleman from um, Oak View Group, just sort of casually mentioned, he said, well, we had a budget of a hundred million, but we, we were thinking of tripling it. So, wow. I mean, what, what a bomb to drop on a, on a, on a meeting. And, and frankly, I, I didn't see anybody, I don't know whether it blew by them or I, I didn't see a lot of response to that. It, it was coming sort of at the tail end of his presentation, but uh, maybe, maybe I missed it, but I, I replayed the tape just to make sure I got it right. And he said, uh, yeah, we're going to triple it or close nearly 280. Yeah. 280, I think is the number he said. And John, I wonder, the thing I wonder about that though, is over the last two or three years, I've probably heard five different numbers thrown around everything from 50 to hundred to 200 to 150 to 180 back to 200. I, I, I just wonder honestly, if they, you're right, that they were caught a little bit off guard because they've also heard a whole bunch of numbers and it didn't really click right away that it was a very large number. Yeah. I mean, it started, uh, um, the, the Hupeg group, the, the Mercanti group, they won the contract on the basis of 50 million. Uh, in renovations to the arena. And I talked to staff not long ago. I said, well, I noticed that uh, at that point, AVG had doubled it to a hundred million. I said, what, what is the actual contractual amount that the city will require? And they said, we're still at 50. Uh, they, they, they won the contract based on an offer of 50. Uh, now, obviously this American group that has come in uh, clearly have a different plan for this arena. And he, and he laid it out a little bit today. He's, he, he really indicated they want to become a big concert venue. Yes. Uh, for Southern Ontario. 
yes. uh, which is quite different than what the facility has been doing for the last, you know, 10 years at least, where it was mainly a hockey lacrosse facility with whatever concerts they could scrape up. But this this group seems confident that they can compete with uh, Toronto and Buffalo and uh, who knows who we're going to be seeing here. Yeah, th- it was a very interesting way that they phrased it because they said our anchor tenant is going to be concerts because you always have at, at most arenas, you have an anchor tenant, a hockey team, a basketball team, whatever, that they get their first dates and then that, that guarantees you that you've got the lights on for X number of days a year and you build around that. They're saying concerts are going to be our anchor tenant and the other stuff will work around them, which is, it's it's unique and if they can make it work, I, I don't, I don't know how hockey or basketball or whatever teams are going to love that when they don't get first choice of dates now, when they have to work around whatever else, but if you can make it work, if you can bring concerts and not just like, you know, Bob Smith's trio, if you can bring in like big concerts, maybe people will go for that. Maybe that'll be the solution. I think it's going to be very difficult to schedule a sports team um, around. If if you're really going after the concerts, they're the ones that have the uncertain dates. And, uh, you know, uh, I I just think from a booking standpoint, it's going to be tough to accommodate a, because you're not just accommodating a team, you're you're actually accommodating a league. Yes. Uh, You know, so you can't just cancel games here and there and reschedule them. I guess you could do that to a point. But it would really play havoc with a uh, with an entire league, and I don't think that's um, really very workable. John, it was very interesting today that um, uh, the the first thing that was said was that uh, one of the councillors mentioned, "Oh, this is a a maintenance budget." And Mike Zagarek, who's the head of finance for the city, chimed in very quickly and said, "No, no, no, no." This is not a maintenance budget. This is not just keeping everything going the way it was before. You've added a lot to this budget. This council has added a lot to this to next year's budget already. They certainly have. Um, I, I was doing a little summary of it. They, uh, after the uh, 2023 budget was set, they added something in the area of $24 million in add-ons. They've declared four emergencies uh, that are all going to cost money, uh, housing, addiction. I mean, they're all worthwhile situations, but uh, when you declare an emergency, uh, if there's no money going with it, then it's probably uh, more of a performative exercise. Um, I think if uh, we read uh, Mr. Zagarek's uh, report correctly, 9% of this is stuff that council has added on and something like 5% is what's required for what you would call maintenance of the current level of service. So uh, council certainly had a hand in, in the uh, 2024 uh, number that we're looking at. Yeah. There's, there was also uh, an effort uh, by a few or yeah, a few counselors to sort of almost try and say, well, this is, you know, a lot of downloading. This is, this is very much because of downloading from the province. And yeah, there definitely is downloading involved in the province, Bill 23 and that kind of thing. But that, that amounts to less than a quarter of what we're talking about here. The vast overwhelming majority is on the backs of this council for adding things. You, they, they can't completely dodge the reality that this is, this is their doing and they've got to figure this out. 
you got to give Mike Zagarek credit for for laying that out on paper. I mean, it's not easy to walk into that council and and uh, you know, I mean, he's he's always very tactful the way he presents information and and you know, it always does a great job. But you know, he's he's laid it out. Uh, anybody that wants to read that report, you don't have to be a chartered accountant to understand what he's saying. Now he he doesn't pass comment on it. He doesn't say, "See, uh, you know, what did you guys do? Uh, you know, here here's what happens when you when you don't have discipline." But it's all there, and mm -hmm. uh, I I think you know they I I'm getting the impression they've kind of decided how they're going to solve the problem. They're going to dip into the uh, reserves, and and the city you know really does have a a couple of large reserve files, and we've still got a triple A credit rating, so. I think Andrea Horvath was quoted as saying, this is the rainy day that we've been saving up for. So it, it's probably, you know, it's not going to be 14%. But I think uh, the, the message, hopefully, that, that is taken from uh, Zagarek's report is that we can't go through the next four years getting all these bright ideas. No, but that's, want... John, that's exactly my concern. That's exactly yeah. my concern that if you dip into the reserves this year and get the number down, it still won't be a nice number. It'll probably still be 8% or something like that. But if you can dip into the reserves and not be slapped as hard as you might've been, you know, those reserves become awfully enticing next year when you add a bunch of things. And then when someone says, let's do free transit for everyone, and that's an extra 5%, we'll touch the reserves for that. It becomes very enticing to have those reserves handy and to go back into them again and again. There's going to have to be real discipline shown to make this a one-time thing. Yeah. And by the way, uh, there is $3 million in free transit that's coming out of reserves. <laughs> that's part of what he what was laid out in, in his report today. So, yeah, I mean, it's not easy. Municipal finance is not easy because you're the lowest level on the totem pole. There's nobody you can download it to except the taxpayer. And it's uh, it's, it's tough stuff. But I, I would hope that uh, after roughly eight months or nine months in, in business, uh, this council now realizes that uh, some of these bright ideas that pop up around the table uh, are, are best, uh, you know, examined very carefully before they're presented. Mm. I, I mean, another, another area where they talked about maybe trying to get this number down below the 14% was user fees, uh, unclear what user fees, but that could be anything almost. I mean, whether your kid plays hockey or soccer or, I mean, pick your thing that the city has its, that owns or has its hands on and almost anything could be more expensive next year. User fees are very, very unpopular. Uh, they're, they're as unpopular as a tax increase for the people that, if we're talking about our recreation programs and hall rentals, it's uh, it's peanuts really uh, to, to come up with anything. Uh, and development charges are going to be difficult because uh, the province is already uh, cut into uh, development charges on, um, you know, uh, low income and affordable housing. Although the, the, the province has said several times that they're going to make the municipalities whole on that issue, but I haven't seen anything yet that would suggest how that's going to happen. Do you, um, the, after this year is done, the proposal or the, the, or the prediction says that they're anticipating a 6% average tax increase for the next two years. 
You think yeah. that that you think they can really hit that, or do I mean, do you you were saying that they have to maybe give second thought to some of these plans? Do you really think that's going to happen, or do you think next this time next year we're going to be talking about something in the ten, eleven, twelve that oh we have to figure out how to get that down again because we added some stuff? I don't know what the number is, but it's going to be very very difficult to hold it to six percent because the six percent that uh, that Mike Zagarek has laid out assumes not another one of these add-on sprees that we had this year. So the 6% is basically, you know, maintaining what we have. And uh, in the first year of operation of this council, that's already not happened. So it's it's going to be, uh, it's going to require discipline. The mayor uses the word discipline quite a bit when she's talking to council. So she seems to understand where this thing could go politically if it, uh, if it can't be brought under control, but yeah. it's uh, it's not an easy uh, it's not an easy exercise when you're really your only source of revenue is water bills mm. and uh, property taxes. The one thing we got to go here. The one thing I really do wonder. I wish I could be a fly on a wall or an IT person or something. I I, I would love to know what the over the last week what the response has been emails, phone calls, all the rest of counselor's office when people heard 14%. Because I, I I find it hard to believe that anything would get people as fired up as suddenly realizing they're looking at a 14% tax increase. I bet they were all swamped with calls. Well, they could well be. I saw a lot of outrage on social media. So certainly the community uh, perked up their ears when they heard that that horrible number of 14%. That was, that was, that came right out of the blue. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I don't, I don't care how much you support programs and that's fine if you do, and it's compassionate sometimes if you do and all the rest, but boy, oh boy, ultimately 14% is, is a whack of dough. That is, uh, that is a lot of money. I don't know how too many people saying, sure, I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. Hit me for 14%. I, I mean, other than John Best, who just is so independently wealthy that, you know, <laughs> 25, 30, 40, whatever, hit me with it. <laughs> Not at all, Bill. <laughs> or Bill. Almost. Not. You know, c- kind of like Bill. Uh, yeah. Listen, really appreciate you doing this, John. Thanks for the time tonight. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You absolutely, I, I, I know, it's a couple of days now, and, and there's no way you have not heard the story about the allegations that the Prime Minister has made against the Indian government as somehow being involved in an assassination of a prominent Sikh uh, leader of the local Sikh community in British Columbia, which has, man, I mean, if you were, um, if you were trying to get people to pay attention, that's how you do it. Accuse a foreign government of being involved in the assassination of someone in your country. I mean... The irony is, of course, that, that other countries have done this kind of thing. Osama bin Laden was a terrorist who was killed in another country. So, it, you know, we can get into all the nuance about, well, what is fair game or what isn't. Uh, I don't think this is fair game. But nonetheless, if you want to get people's attention, if you want to get their... Full attention, you, you, you tell this and you say our intelligence services have credible information. I believe that was the words, credible allegations 
Canadian intelligence agencies were investigating credible allegations that this person was assassinated in Canada. What do we make of this? And, and here's the big thing. As soon as I heard this, the first thing that came to mind was, oh, geez, I hope we're right. I hope he's right. As Canadians, I hope this is correct because, my goodness, I don't know what kind of mess this is if it's not correct. Dr. Robert Hewish is an associate professor with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Joins us now. Dr. Hewish, thank you for this today. Yeah, good evening. Thank you. Uh, let's go to that first right off the bat. I don't know if that same thing crossed your mind at any point, but uh, what happens if this is not correct? Well, that would be a catastrophic end to Justin Trudeau's uh, political career. I mean, this is not something that you would take on hearsay or announce lightly in any way. And and and, and the severity of what's being uh, brought forward here is to such a degree that I'm actually a little bit shocked that it wasn't done in a more uh, extravagant, isn't the right word, but a more uh, action-oriented message delivery. It almost seems like it came out a little bit quietly. Uh, you would think there'd be a lot more uh, forward evidence to say, hey, mm. this is exactly what happened. And we, 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 we've got the evidence and here it is, Canadians. This is what has gone on by, uh, by the government of India. And I think that's, that message delivery is one small mistake. Uh, that that's happened so far. This is something that really needs to be presented publicly. And it's, it's something that if there's, you know, secret uh, classified documents that are holding back the delivery of that information, that needs to be renegotiated because this isn't just about a political career. This is about national security. And it's about now another major government uh, engaging in foreign interference and, and murder in, in Canada. And that's, that's new. Yeah. So I think, um, I think the presentation of this needs to be a bit, a bit more uh, bold than what we've seen so far. Yeah, this and, is, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about the per, about the yeah. public part of it because, yeah. you know, it, we don't say, well, okay, in Canada, I mean, in the States, they do this sometimes. They have a different system where they present, let's say, let's say you were charged with some crime. The, the, the uh, a prosecutor might come out and say, here's the evidence we have against you. We don't do that here so much. However, as you say, this is a different scenario. You are accusing a foreign government of, something outrageously bad, it does seem to me if you're going to make this allegation publicly, you're almost on the hook to, to show something other than just saying we have allegations to show something that suggests there's meat to this. Exactly. Because in the meantime, the more that that gets delayed, the more that skeptics and opponents uh, can sort of bite into this and say, well, there's proof, no proof uh, that that's going to, that's going to water down the public message of it and take away from the gravity of this scenario. And let's not forget who the opponents are in this equation. And one of them is, would be the government of India under Mr. Modi, Prime Minister Modi. And Mr. Modi and his enthusiasts and followers are the, the largest contributors of disinformation on the planet when it comes to, to fake news. I mean, even right down to weather events in Canada. This is, this is like a hobby craft mm. by, uh, by internet enthusiasts in India to just sort of muck up the news and try to create misinformation. Uh, you know, China's dabbled in it. North Korea's dabbled in it. India has a powerhouse at this. This is one of their major exports, if you wanted to say it that way. And if you're dealing with a government that is is disingenuous to that level, the only way to get through it is just by clarifying the truth, to hold nothing back. And that's 
that, that that's what a lot of folks in security study circles have said about disinformation is you fight it back with complete transparency and that transparency will build trust and where the starting point in that equation should be i mean where where these conversations need to begin with is has the government of india done this before somewhere else and the answer is yes they have they have done it in pakistan on a couple of occasions, the what's called the the R and A W, which is the the research and analysis wing of, the, of India's military, uh, have gotten away with this a few times in Pakistan. Again, looking for uh, for Sikh uh, leaders who are who are uh, promoting uh, this uh, Khalistan uh, idea, and uh, there's even been ac- accusations of that in the United Kingdom as well. Uh, but those were proved. You know, the local authorities there said no, there was no meat to that. So yes, it has happened. Uh, they're they're not immune to it. There's often uh, Sikh leaders in India who have been encouraging Khalistan have been suppressed brutally uh, with inside because they the Indian government views this movement as a terrorist movement, so they hold nothing back. But this is the first time uh, that any of the Five Eyes nations or a NATO nation, for that matter, has 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 had a, a you know a, an act of assassination on on their soil by another country and that's that that's beyond brazen mm. uh, and and i think that's where we have to begin this this conversation say and, is india capable of it yes have they done it before yes is this the first time that it's happened in a nato country probably and neither you nor i knows what really happened so we will you know okay so it's it's very possible it's as you say it's been done before i i did uh, the other thing that came to mind though was it wasn't that long ago it was back in beginning of this year that the government and the prime minister was urging great caution about reports from the intelligence about Chinese interference. I don't necessarily listen to the intelligence because we're not really yeah. sure. Do you, d- uh, unintentionally, did he undermine our intelligence and this intelligence by saying, hey, back then, yeah, you don't really want to listen to everything intelligence says because, you know, they may not be right. Does that mm-hmm. under, does that take something away from his message here now that you're saying, oh, listen to our intelligence, it's bang on. Yeah, yeah. And and that that's going to lead to another set of questions to say, and this inquiry that's coming up, well, how deep does, does Chinese interference go into the government of Canada, into the provinces, into the municipalities? I mean, the evidence that's already popped up for that is is pretty shocking. And the question is, who was asleep at the wheel to let that happen? So perhaps that conversation is also well known by governments uh, abroad, like like India, and and for a while now, Trudeau has been a target by Prime Minister Modi and his enthusiasts as uh, as promoting uh, Kalinistan. So he's he's been this target within Indian media for a while, and seeing that there was a sort of oh oh did we get caught mm. uh, by benefiting from Chinese influence, or was there some sort of a deeper piece to this equation that's yet to be revealed could have been seen as a sign of weakness because Mr. Modi is a is a is a sort of populist strongman and he looks at everybody friend and foe alike as someone to battle with there's there's very few uh truly collegial warm relationships and I, and I know now right now with the, with the US India is trying to repair relations there as well and Mr. Biden and Mr. Modi are are in, in discussions but I'm sure the Americans are looking at this as saying, well, we'll, we'll engage with this guy uh, because it's economically beneficial and, and there's other reasons to it. But politically, uh, this is a really, th- th- there's teeth behind this. It is and, a, uh, uh, for, for Mr. Modi, the one India policy, it is something that people in India are buying into. It's uh, anytime Khalistan or separatist movements get brought up, 
there's a surge in support for for Modi. And uh, I think this is just feeding right into that. It, it's him. it's such a complicated thing. But back to the start, we got to run. Uh, back to the start. Yeah. Oh my goodness, Trudeau has to be right here, or else this is. Uh, and and you know what? We have no reason to think he's not, but he has to yeah. be right, or else this is a horrendous situation. Um, Dr. Robert Hewish from Dalhousie, Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for this day. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much indeed. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've had a couple discussions on this show about grade inflation. Grade inflation. It is something that um, it's been going on for a while now. It seemed to really accelerate during COVID. But essentially it is, um, and my next guest will be able to explain maybe the theory behind why it's happening so much, but it's the idea that kids today are getting way higher grades than kids before did. Some say, hey, maybe they're just smarter. More seem to say, no, teachers aren't marking as hard or they're factoring in other things. But I always figured that grade inflation was going to be most pronounced in English and French and history and courses in the arts. Because there's way more room for subjective marking in those kind of things. You hand in an essay on King Lear, there's a world of room for a teacher to interpret or subjectively give you a grade, whether they think you did well or not. But in math, in science, if you do a math problem, you either get the answer or you don't. There doesn't seem to be much subjectivity. Well, a... A new study, a new report says not only is that not the case, but math marks are the ones going up the most in grade inflation in some places. It's very strange. Let me bring in Paul Bennett. He is the director of Schoolhouse Consulting. Many people, myself included, think that he is the top education analyst in this country. He joins us now. Paul, how are you tonight? Nice to be back with you, Scott. Always great to have you on here. This, this truly puzzled me because, as I said uh, in my long introduction there, I thought English and those kind of things, that would be the place where we would see this. How, how and why are we seeing this in math? That seems illogical. Let's take a step backwards. Sure. Math grades were always perceived to be more firm, more, bit more objectively based, and uh, kind of the best and most reliable yardstick of student achievement because there was less personal impact. There was less, um, if you want, subjectivity to the marks. But what we're learning is that the changes in the last five years have meant that math has suffered the same kind of effect as other subject areas. And when you look at the United States, and the study we're looking at here is the Heckinger report, which came out uh, last week, which looked at um, the um, college admissions in the United States the ACT scores, which are the college admission scores, and the grades, uh, GPAs, that students present to the universities. And it shows conclusively that the um, mark inflation is every bit as evident in math as it is in those other subjects. And it's gotten worse. The other thing that's going on is that um, math, um, the math scores and the um, college admission tests have dropped a little bit, but the grades awarded by the teachers uh, for admission to universities mm. have gone up significantly. Any reason to believe, even though these are American marks, any reason to believe it's not the same in Canada? Everything in that report I've documented, 
and others have shown to be the case in Ontario, Alberta, and all provinces with the possible exception of Quebec. This is a long time, a long-term problem. Would you like me to take your audience back through how it happened? Absolutely. In 1967 in Ontario, they abolished departmental examinations. And they were a kind of a, a um, I, I would say, a bit of a hurdle that uh, students had to, had to pass to in order to go to college and university. At that time, there were Ontario scholars. Uh, Ontario scholar, scholarships were awarded to students. They got $400 each um, if they um, managed to get 80% out of seven subjects that they had to complete up to grade 13 for admission to the universities. They had to include all seven subjects, and they had to get 80%. 5% of students were able to become Ontario scholars up until the late 1960s. Starting in the 1970s, the numbers crept up. By the 1990s, it was 40% of the students wow. graduating with OACs, Ontario Academic Credits, grade 12, get their best six, it was easier to get it, uh, they actually had 40% were getting over 80%. And then by the 1990s and into the early um, 2000s, it hit 60%. Right now, in, I've documented this, it's as high as 70% to 80% of students get 80%. Is it possible that kids are just smarter or that, or that we have adjusted our expectations of school where now kids take it much more seriously, therefore they study much more because it's tougher to get into university and they know that, and therefore this isn't inflation. This is kids working harder to get better grades. There are more kids in the school system today. So there's a wider range of abilities. That must be noted and st stated. But in Ontario, there were four key developments that raised marks. First of all, the provincial government decided they needed to raise graduation rates. So the McGuinty and Wynne government took graduation rates from 68% to 86% over the course of the period from 2005 to 2018. They also succeeded in encouraging teachers and boards did this to reduce the weighting of final exams to the point where it was 40%, then 30%, and then 20%. And with each uh, reduction, it, it raised the graduation uh, rates by 1% um, each time they dropped those expectations. They also developed alternative ways of securing credits so you didn't have to write exams. One of the most popular was credit recovery. If you failed, you could take through other means, coming in at lunch hours and so on, you could, you could actually get credits without ever having passed the course. The final thing was what was called no-fail policies that crept in. There'd be no zeros. No one could be given zeros. Everyone would be given a base mark of about 60, eliminating essentially the possibility that anyone would fail. So the combination of those factors and changes um, actually reduced the... Uh, standards significantly, um, made it easier to graduate, and um, created a 
an upward pressure on grades. Hmm. I'm, I'm a little uh, distressed that some of the people getting these giveaway 60s were getting higher marks than I was in math <laughs> for my effort. Nonetheless, it's an old story. I won't get into the deep, dark secrets of that one. Um, what about right now, if you're a teacher, and let's say you're a teacher in a school board and you say, yeah, you know what, grade inflation is a problem and I think it's outrageous and I'm going to be marking legitimately. I'm going to be asking kids to do the curriculum and I am not going to be giving away free marks. You have to earn your marks. And then all of a sudden, half the kids in your class all get very low or much lower than every other class's grades. Will that teacher be applauded or will that teacher be called on the carpet and told to lighten up? There are three pressure points that render that kind of behavior next to impossible. First of all, the principals are keen on keeping up graduation rates and averages, and they will intervene to make sure that there are certain benchmarks and accepted standards. So teachers who deviate are going to find that the case. Secondly, parents aren't very helpful because most of them want their kids to go to the best universities, in this case, in Ontario would be the universities of their choice. So the last thing they want is marks that are going to prevent their kids from getting there. And thirdly, I think there's there's another issue, and that is that there's peer pressure uh, on you. Um, Because uh, in a secondary school, for example, most of the classes these days are optional. Students make choices. It's a marketplace. So if you're known as being a hard marker, uh, you're under tremendous pressure. Um, kids simply won't take your courses, or they'll opt out of your section and choose someone else's. So for those three reasons, the pressure is on teachers to keep the marks up and to push the kids along and right through to um, college and university. There is, though, I would think, a really easy answer to fix this, if there's any desire to fix this, and I don't know if there is. And if it's not going to fall within the school boards or the schools themselves, universities simply have to do what they once upon a time did. And if a kid shows up, you're expected to be able to perform at a university level. I would think that if all these grades are being exaggerated and kids aren't really as bright as they think they are, by the time you get to university, you could be exposed in your first year and universities could do a real service by saying, you're not teaching these kids properly and the marks you're giving them are not nearly accurate. Well, Scott, they've been saying that for about a decade and a half. Uh, if you talk to any university teacher, first year, college teacher, they'll, be, they'll tell you exactly what we've discussed today, and that is that the kids aren't able to do the work they once did, they're not as strong, and they're not nearly as well prepared as they were even a decade ago. Now, after the pandemic, it's even more acute. Teachers and, um, I would say, first-year university professors and college instructors are beside themselves. Anytime I have, I'm one of them. I have discussions with them, and they're tearing their hair out because there is no, um, no condition under which the kids can actually perform up to normally expected levels. I don't know whether you noticed in the ACT um, study out of the Heckinger Institute, it was really quite interesting to say that uh, standards were relaxed during the pandemic, marks were easier to come by, and they took a look at this, at they've continued to be inflated. Um, there was an adjustment upward in grades to compensate for kids not being in school, 
And what we've seen is it's continuing. So I would, I would suggest to you that it's made it worse. The pandemic has made great inflation worse right across the board. I, I don't doubt that for a second, but what you just said also leads to a logical conclusion. There's only so long this could go on for until everybody is basically getting 95, no matter how. I mean, if everybody's grades are creeping up and it's getting easier and easier and you're always going upwards, you, nobody's getting 137%. There's, there's, a, there's a ceiling on this. There's only so far you can go. Then what? Well, I would like to see the Ontario government introduce uh, uh, Ontario college admission tests. I would like to, to see that this government, before its mandate is up, uh, call everyone's bluff and introduce the equivalent of ACTs. And you would find out uh, very quickly that the kids just simply aren't up to the standards and there would be backward pressure on the high schools and uh, teachers to do a better job of preparing the kids. Now, um, would there it be, may Paul? not be the right w- time to do it because the pandemic and mm. um, the long COVID is still affecting student performance. Would there be? See, I'm looking at that. I'm hearing what you're saying and I think it's a brilliant idea. But I'm thinking the pressure would not end up being on the schools. The pressure, it would turn political, and the pressure would be on the government for having made a test that's way too hard just to prove a point. No, I think what happened in the United States is the uh, core knowledge curriculum and the common core, there were lessons learned. I think we would be far better prepared in doing this. That was what happened in the United States, the common core curriculum uh, it was far too challenging for most kids, and it was intru- wasn't introduced in an effective fashion. I think the standards have to be realistic. They have to be consistent with what the universities and colleges need, and they respect for in, with respect to the skills. And I think there we could clean it up. But I think it would take um, you know there has to be some preparation. The kids and the teachers in high schools will have to be prepared because I don't think right now they would actually be up mm. to doing this and succeeding. Do we know if in the States, and, and you know, we've, most people know about the SAT, do we know if that has become easier over time or is that still as difficult today as it was 20 years ago? The ACTs are remarkably consistent and so is the uh, National Assessment of Educational Progress in the United States. What you look, what you see there is uh, declines and slight increases and static, static trends. Uh, you can be pretty confident that those assessments, those aptitude tests, are fairly accurate in terms of reading, uh, er, er, interpreting the real skills and aptitudes of the kids. I, I'm pretty confident about that. Mm. Now, whether they reflect, you know, the, um, I would say, cultural nuances or culturally relevant um, understandings from a variety of different diverse viewpoints, you could make an argument that they need to be improved there. But um, I've, I've made this case. You know what the, the uh, least unfair form of assessment is? A standardized assessment. It's a yeah. level playing, p- playing field. Uh, you can't negotiate your way out of it. And um, everyone is treated the same. And teacher biases, uh, other factors don't come into consideration. And uh, when you, you um, have teacher assigned marks and grades, measured up against uh, standardized assessments every time the evidence is that it's fairer to kids if there's a standardized assessment. I, I, I'll go further than that. I think you're exactly right. I would love to see standardized tests 
and I would love to see teachers rewarded with bonuses depending on how they do. And I think that all of a sudden you would see the most motivated teachers in the world. I mean, some of them are already, many are already very motivated. I'm not suggesting they're only going to be motivated by money, but all of a sudden you say, look, there's a 10% bonus here. If you get X number of kids on a standardized test that you can't control, who can get an X mark, I, I, think, I think it would be very motivating. Um, we got to go, but I, I, I want to go back to where we very first started this conversation because maybe I missed it. But I'm still struggling to understand when math is the presumably most objective of subjects to grade, why math or how math is now the one leading in grade inflation. What are teachers doing? How, how, how is this the thing that's getting inflated? Oh, it's um, the changes in math curriculum. The California math curriculum puts more emphasis on social skills, on group work, collaboration, and um, they're less emphasis on getting the right answer. And so more and more you find um, broader skills being applied to math. So it's becoming more like social studies in terms of its assessment criteria. And therefore, um, you don't get the uh, clear um, indications of what kids actually know. I, I, I'm reasonably confident then that I don't want my future accountant, um, chemist, engineer, architect, rocket scientist, doctor. I, I don't want any of these people work out. Anyone who's in the age group that this is true of, you don't you want to be setting a standard so that you're teaching and you know who can do this so then those people move on to those professions? I, don't, don't you want right answers to be the expectation? Uh, that, that to me sounds crazy. We have outstanding students today. There are just fewer of them, and they actually are up against much more obstacles and resistance in the school system. It is, uh, it, it, is a, it is a strange world we live in, I guess. Um, yeah, great inflation all over the place, but especially in math. That is, uh, it doesn't logically make a lot of sense, but there you go. Uh, Paul Bennett, Director of Schoolhouse Consulting, and uh, as I said off the top, Canada's leading educational analyst. Paul, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to join you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're driving around today, you may have come across a protest. Uh, I was down at City Hall. There was one out in front of there. I know there was one up on Upper Wentworth at the uh, Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board offices. They were all across the country. Uh, There were protests and counter-protesters, or counter-protesters and protesters, depending. And what was remarkable about this is that it seems the protests were arguing two completely separate arguments, but thinking they were arguing against the other one. It makes it a very complicated thing. It was about gender issues. And one seemed to be an argument that says, we don't want schools and government to be telling kids, don't tell your parents if you're having gender confusion, or we don't want schools keeping secrets from parents. The other side was, well, we're for trans rights. And if you don't support that, then you're anti-trans. It wasn't seemingly fighting the same fight, but they were both very passionate about their positions. Well, this all comes to what we're going to get to now. Uh, Angus Reid has been doing a, is doing a series of polls and polling 
studies about different things in the culture wars in our society. And the one that's just come out is all about gender issues. Can't find anything I don't think that's more hot as a hot button and certainly today more topical. John Rowe is a research associate with Angus Reid. Glad to have you back, John. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Your timing is, uh, with, with this going on, your timing is pretty uh, pretty amazing. And as I say, the, the difficult thing about today's event and some of the numbers in your poll go to this on each side, it didn't sound like the argument was about the same thing. It was two different arguments that was couched to be opposite each other, but it wasn't quite, they weren't really arguing opposite sides of the same coin. Yeah, it, I think that's what's kind of difficult about this issue so far. Um, and some of the or first polling we released from this study was about uh, the policies in schools in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. Right. Um, and what we found was that I think what most Canadians will say is that it's it's not really about, I mean, stopping kids from changing their gender identity. And our kind of data today shows that there's a lot of Canadians out there who would be very accommodating if they had a kid who uh, showed a proficiency for a gender that they weren't, that wasn't the one they were born with. Uh, but it's kind of more about that they want to be informed and part of the discussion when it comes to what happened, what's happening at schools and with their kid. Right. And so your, your numbers, and let's start there. Um, when you first did this one, uh, so I'm going to do the math, 78% of people across the country of all ages, genders, whatever, said if my kid was going to change gender or felt they wanted to, that at least the parent at least should be informed and maybe should be giving consent. But combine those two gets up to 78%. That's a, that's a really huge number who think parents should be involved somehow. Yeah, and I think what the, I guess the argument from, uh, there are 14% out there who believe that parents should neither be informed nor have a say is that there's a lot of concern for kids who are potentially transitioning and maybe their parents aren't accepting that behavior and are they're potentially in a dangerous or abusive situation that they don't, uh, the school would maybe be putting them at risk by doing this. But I feel like a lot of parents out there would, would see feel like they're, okay, well, I would accept it if it was my kid that was coming out and they want to know from the school that that's happening. The, the, the second part of this, and we're going to work through a bunch of these numbers because there's a lot of numbers here. We're not going to get to all of them, but it's, it's all in the, the chain or the spectrum of this whole discussion. Uh, also very significant numbers of people, and I'm not surprised by this at all, uh, very significant numbers of people in this country who would be very hesitant, loathe, I don't know, pick your word, if a child that's say eight or 12 or even 16 wanted to begin hormone therapy, it's one thing to potentially want to be identified as a different gender, but to start getting into changing a body of some child, not an adult, a child, it, it really, it, it seems to give a lot of people in this country pause. Yeah, and we asked, uh, we kind of split the sample up into different age, each kind of respondents or group of respondents got to see a different age. So there was some respondents, a third of them were asked about eight-year-olds, a third of them were asked about 12-year-olds, and a third of them were asked about 16-year-olds. And it was pretty, across the board, pretty similar numbers that uh, around two-thirds of Canadians, about 60% or more, would say that they they would oppose uh a kid taking beginning hormone therapy at those ages and it was pretty yeah pretty consistent across age, age levels as well uh which i think yeah it kind of speaks to maybe there is a bit of hesitancy about okay well 
maybe once you begin those kind of more medical processes to change your gender, that people aren't nearly as ready to kind of accept those things and are kind of opposed for seeing those in kids. Well, yeah. And I mean, look, I I, I get that. And for the same reason that we've decided, and, and I think this is probably where a lot of people may have gone on this one, like the vast majority again, is will we say that you are not mature enough to know if you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. So you can't be charged for a crime until you're 16. Do we really want to put the choice of this massive a choice, this massive a decision in the hands of an eight-year-old? I I get why there is hesitancy around there. It's a real, it's a tough one to wrap your head around to say, we don't let you, you could do something horrible and we won't charge you as an adult because we don't think that you have the capacity to know that yet but we're going to let you do this. It's, it's, I get it. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, I guess the kind of the professional recommendation from the Canadian pediatric society uh, is that hormone blockers should not be started before puberty starts. So there is some, uh, I guess, kind of medical professional opinions that come into this as well. Uh, most, most doctors I wouldn't recommend giving them to an eight year old. Uh, but that is something that, that is out there that people are discussing. Let's, let's move to, okay. From that, which is exceedingly serious to something that is in the, in the discussion, uh, certainly I would say much less serious. And that's words, words that are gender neutral or that have taken woman or femininity out of them. For example, uh, there are those who now say, we don't talk about a, say a pregnant mother or a, 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 a woman who's pregnant. They'd be a pregnant person. I've even heard, you know, the birthers or people who menstruate. These are words that a lot of people say take femininity, take womanhood out of the equation. Across the board, it seems an awful lot of people say, no, no, we don't want that. Yeah, uh, two thirds of Canadians say that's a bad thing and it devalues the female identity in society and where 17% say it's a good thing. And that's pretty consistent across uh, age, ages and, and uh, gender demographics. Um, younger Canadians are more likely to be accepted of those or feel like those gender neutral terms are a good trend. Um, but there is quite, yeah, there's quite a bit of pushback on, on those kind of changes. I was even surprised how many people, and it's not nearly the same level that, I mean, that's a very high number in a lot of 67%, two thirds are not in favor of those kind of pick your own words, what you want to say. I mean, some people see mumbo jumbo words are just like the difficult words because they, they've taken out what we've always used, but less, but still strong in the people who disagree. Even when you get an email and it says, you know, uh, John Rowe, he, him, a, a lot of people not even in favor of that saying, no, that don't do that. Yeah. So we put the statement forward of everyone. Uh, so agree. Uh, Respondents could agree or disagree. Everyone should put their pronouns, he, she, they, in their social media profiles and emails. Uh, and only 22% believe that's the case. And I think it's more that maybe people don't want to force that on everyone if they if they don't necessarily feel comfortable putting those pronouns in there. Um, and yeah, it, it was I considering how much you see that now in emails going out. That I was kind of surprised that 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 there was that many people who kind of re- rejected that everyone should be doing that. You know what's so interesting about all your numbers here? We, we got a few more minutes, but what's so interesting about all your numbers is that while there seems to be a pretty consistent hesitancy to some of these things. I don't know that it's going to change anything. And that's not your fault. You just did the numbers, but I don't know that anyone is going to listen because if you say this, that people are not wanting this, there would be the critics who would say, well, you're just anti-trans. I, I don't know that with this topic, 
there is a discussion that can be had because it will just end up in a shrill yelling match and accusations of someone being something. Yeah, and I think one of the, I guess, one of the other kind of, I guess, kind of juxtapositions of all this data is that uh, we ask people as well, like, do do you feel like transgender people face a lot of discrimination in their daily lives? And majorities of Canadians believe that's the case. Uh, as well, majorities of Canadians say that increasing acceptance of transgender people is a sign of social progress. So there, there is kind of this uh, general acceptance and kind of belief that it is good that society is moving towards kind of these greater acceptances of trans people in society. Uh, but then there's a lot of pushback on some of the specific instances of uh, what people would feel as maybe accommodation or acceptance, things like gender neutral language, things like pronouns and emails and things like that. One more. And this one, uh, I, I didn't know what to expect. I, you know, I, I look at the topics and I tried not to look at the graphs right away. It's hard on the, you know, on the website, but I tried not to, cause I was trying to guess as I was reading through this. So how do I think this would be? This one surprised me a great deal. Uh, I think because I, I didn't think this would be the way. Many people, 60% say way too much attention is paid to transgender issues by the media, that this is just, you're hearing it all the time and it's too much. And I, I don't know what too much is, but almost two thirds of the country says, yeah, cool it a little bit. And we and we asked this question, so we had the benefit of comparing this to uh, when we first asked about this in 2016, and that percentage of people had grown significantly. So in 2016, it was 12% felt there was too little attention, 39% said it was the right amount of attention, 41% said it was too much, and now it's completely shifted to 60% say it's too much attention. So And it has been in discussion and been in the media quite a bit more recently, obviously, I mean, given the, these protests today, it's going to be continuing in the media, I guess, for uh, the foreseeable yes. future. But yeah, it does seem like a lot of Canadians are, are are seeing that there's too much of it out there. Well, last week when you were here, we got to run, but last week when you were here, we were talking about things like banning books and culture wars and things like that. And if I recall correctly, one of the words that people used as I think it was the second most common word when talking about the culture wars was exhausting. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that's what's at play here. It's just another one of those things where people are like, you know what, all it is is a fight and I'm just exhausted always having to talk about it. Yeah, and 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 it was paired with divisive. So I think people are seeing yeah. these kinds of discussions as pulling pulling society and pulling Canada apart in some ways. It is uh, again another fascinating look. Uh, AngusReed.org. If you want to go look this one up, you can find it. Uh, lots and lots and lots of stuff here to read through. You may agree, you may disagree, uh, but it is it is definitely worth a read. Uh, John, as always, John Rose, research associate with Angus Reed. Love having you on. We'll we'll talk again soon. I'm betting. Yeah, thank, thanks a lot, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.